Let's turn together to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm so glad that we're able to worship together online through social media. I appreciate Tommy and Nathan and others who are making this possible for us to worship like this together, even online. And really, isn't this the best of social media? I mean, it's wonderful how we can stay connected, how we can even continue growing as a church. We can even extend our reach in these days beyond what we typically would. Really, this is the best of social media. But we know there's another side to social media. It can be a dark place as well. Social media can be a place of trolls. Social media can be a place of deception, a place of bullying, and really even bragging. You know there's such a thing called a, a humble brag. That's a real word. Here's the definition of a humble brag. An ostensibly modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud. And so really what it is, it's a boast in disguise. And you've probably seen them through the years on social media. It might be like this. Maybe a lady bakes a beautiful masterpiece of a cake. I mean, it's exquisite. And she posts the picture out there online. And then underneath that beautiful picture, she might say something like this. I'm so embarrassed how this turned out. And of course, we know how it works. Everybody piles in comments. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's amazing. It was a humble brag. Or maybe you'd be a person who's really proud about getting into a certain college. Maybe somebody could make it into Harvard. And they might post a picture of their acceptance letter to Harvard. But then they gotta, they got to put it out there in disguise as a boast. And they'll say something like, well, apparently Harvard's letting everybody in now. I can't believe I made it in. Oh, it's a humble brag. It's no big deal. There are bigger problems in the world. It's a little bit cringy, somewhat comical but I bring it up because I don't want us to think that what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians is a humble brag. As he boasts repeatedly about his weaknesses, he's not looking for a way for us to pat him on the back. He actually wants us to understand he doesn't want any glory for himself. He wants every opportunity to point to the glory of the Lord. So he's teaching us that our boast should never be in ourselves, always in Christ. So you remember the context here. Paul's having to defend himself to a church that he loves that had turned on him. False teachers had infiltrated the church, turned the church against him. And so he has this embarrassing task of having to prove he is a genuine apostle of the Lord. And so he's pointing to his credentials. But over and over again, he points to his weaknesses that he might brag on God. And God's faithfulness to him through every trial he's experienced. God's provision for him and God's grace toward him. That grace we've been calling a rugged grace. If you were with us last time, you remember Paul talked in 2 Corinthians 12 about this thorn in the flesh, he called it. Some difficult, painful thing in his life that God determined to leave in his life that Paul might learn great lessons like this, that God's grace is sufficient. That he left the thorn in the flesh in Paul's life that he might learn things like this, that power is perfected in weakness. Or this one, when I'm weak, then I am strong. So he's teaching us something vitally important for life. And do you know this is absolutely true, by the way? That when you finally realize your emptiness, you're then ready to be full of God. When you're finally ready to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, you're ready to be made rich in Christ, becoming a child of God. When you finally realize your weakness, or you're ready then to be full of the power of God. But as long as you think you're strong and adequate all by yourself, you and I will remain weak in that state. So use these days of a universal humbling, a universal weakness on the earth. Use it 
to look up to the Lord that you might be made strong. Trust in Jesus. Let him save you. Let him sustain you. Let him strengthen you. And I want you to know I'm, I'm living this in my own life. As I read the word daily and then pivot to a time of prayer, I'm letting a number of passages remind me daily that my strength is in the Lord. One of those passages is Philippians 4, that context of being content and suffering. And then I come back to what we've talked about before here, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That steadies me. That steals me. Even, even here, our passage in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talked about, I've learned to be content with all these difficulties. He says, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So Paul is teaching us a lot, even while he's been defending himself to the Corinthians. But now in this part of our passage, he turns the tables on the Corinthians. He still loves them. He's not trying to get them but now he wants to turn the tables to address some things they need to work on in their lives. In fact, notice verse 19. All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ, and catch this, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So Paul turns from defense, which he did out of love for them. Now he turns to offense out of love for them, to build them up. They've been critiquing Paul, thinking that they were really strong and missing out that they were actually in deep spiritual trouble themselves. By the way, that can happen to us. Jesus warned us it's much easier to look at somebody else's life and find the speck in their eye blind to this beam that might be in our own eye. And the Corinthians had this problem. And, and Paul now turns the table to show them, here's some things you guys need to be working on. And so he's going to confront them in three areas in order to build them up in Christ. The first is this. He's going to confront their problem with dishonor. Secondly, he's going to confront their problem with disunity. And then third, he's going to confront their problem with immorality. And we're going to find this to be a very practical, relevant word for ourselves as well. First of all, he confronts their problem with dishonor. Notice verse 11. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul loved these Corinthians. He affirmed it here again. They should have been loving Paul in return. They should have actually been defending Paul to these false teachers. But there they were, passive, making Paul defend himself, maybe even joining in in their critique. They should have been relating to Paul as a loving, sacrificial father. That's the language Paul brings up here. But instead, they are causing Paul to have to defend himself in what Paul would call this long, foolish speech about himself. So, so notice here, Paul calls out the Corinthians for their dishonor. Notice what he said in verse 11. I should have been commended by you. All this talk about boasting and weaknesses and all that should have never been necessary. They should have commended Paul. They were dishonoring him. They should have been giving him deep appreciation, affection, respect, and mutual love. Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. Paul was the one who planted their church. He was a spiritual father to them. That's all he wanted from them as a mutual, loving relationship, like, like a father and a child here. 
And so they dishonored him, and Paul calls it out. Now, giving honor is a big deal, but in our culture, we don't really think in terms of honor a whole lot. I mean, we love this, and, and I think it's a good thing in our culture that we can speak our mind about any topic without fear of being in trouble with the government. But sometimes I think it goes too far in our culture where we speak our mind and we go into dishonor. Other cultures go too far the other way. In some places where we've lived, we've been in places where you knew, even if you disagreed with how things were being handled in the country, you knew to hold your tongue. There was no freedom to bring it up. In fact, in one country where we lived, in every government office, they'd always have a picture of the president, the dictator, a poster-sized picture in a frame leaning down at you with, with an unsmiling face, a glare, and you got the message. This is his country, and you can't say what you please. He's watching you was the thought. But again, in our culture, I think we've gone too far with our freedom to express ourselves. Sometimes we do. We move over into a lack of honor for other people. And, and so I think in our lives, whether government people or just people that we know, we may have sinned against people by failing to honor them. The Bible, again, talks a lot about honor. Certainly, we're to honor God. We read that in places like 1 Timothy 1.17. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, here it is, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or Revelation 7.12. Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Or even toward God the Son, Jesus, we read this in Revelation 5, 12 and following. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And so let's just pause here. Do you honor God? Do you revere him? Do you worship him? Do you trust him? Do you follow him? Do you obey him? I mean, this would be the ultimate dishonor if you just outright reject God himself. Or to say, I prefer other things. I choose other things than God. Other people, other things matter to me more than the God. It would be the ultimate dishonor. And so trust in God. Trust in Jesus, walk with him, give him honor. But here's a question, do you honor others? And that's the issue with the people in Corinth. They were not honoring Paul. So ask yourself, do I honor other people in my life? Well, 1 Peter 2, 17 says this, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Did you catch that? There's a way in which we're to give honor to all people. Romans 13, 7, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. First Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Or Ephesians 6, quoting from Exodus 20, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Here it is, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you might live long on the earth. And then here's an interesting one. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. So God says there's a way in which that we, how we treat the poor may dishonor them and dishonor him or honor them and honor him. And so how we treat other people, this idea of honor, though, really Maybe something unusual for us to consider, very important, and Paul calls out the Corinthians on this point. So do you owe honor to somebody in your life? 
in these days where you're maybe stuck indoors with people in your family, are you giving honor there? Maybe you're a child, are you giving honor to your parents? That's do them. God expects it. How about to your spouse? Are you treating each other with honor? Or maybe the leaders in your life. Or maybe it's your sibling. Or maybe it's your brother or sister in Christ. It's not inconsequential. It shows up in how you treat people. We should have appropriate honor. And so the Corinthians were failing in the area of honor. And it it was showing up in their relationship with Paul, but also to each other. Because the second thing Paul confronts is this. He confronts their problem with disunity. He confronts their dishonor, but also their disunity and their division. Notice verse 20. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish, that perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Paul points out the divisions there. And so this was a recurring problem in the church at Corinth. In fact, right out of the gate in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I understand that there are quarrels among you. He goes on to confront how they were in their different parties of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They had these divisions, and, and Paul's still concerned about that ongoing problem in the church. They were fleshly in their thinking, sinful in the way they treated one another. And so they were dishonoring and wounding Paul and they're dishonoring and wounding each other. Notice again this ugly list in verse 20, words like strife, jealousy. Can you imagine this in a church? Angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. They were dishonoring and being divided with each other. Remember, Paul had to teach this church in Corinth how to love each other. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 was written in the context of a church that needed to learn how to love it. That passage we hear at weddings or on anniversary cards, that wasn't the original context. It was how a church ought to love each other. They were failing at a very basic Christian level, and Paul once again confronts it. So let's again apply this to ourselves. Are we honoring each other in the life of the church? And I'm so glad glad that really, by God's grace, we have been treating each other this way, but let's continue to do so. We read this in Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another and brotherly love. Give preference to one another, here it is, in honor. And so let's always view each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. There'll never be any room for us to mistreat one another that will continue to rally to our common love for Jesus, our confidence in the scriptures, our commitment to the great commission that God's given us. These things have held us together and may they always hold us together. But then Paul confronts them in another area, their dishonor, their disunity, but now their immorality. And another practical word for us, pick up now with me verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So like the problem the Corinthians had with fighting each other, their division, that was something that was an ongoing problem. Well, so was sexual immorality. Corinth was known for being an immoral city in a very immoral Roman Empire, but it was known for its immorality. Even in their pagan temples, sexual immorality was a part of that, and many of the Corinthians had been saved out of that life. Unfortunately, some of them were trying to have it both ways. I want to follow Jesus, but I want to bring that immoral life that I used to have in the past, and and as we're going to see, that is just not acceptable. And so, by the way, this also, this idea of honoring really shows up in this topic as well, that you can dishonor somebody by how you handle your body in this realm of sexuality. 
We're to glorify God with our bodies. Hebrews 13.4, it says marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. And so we can dishonor God. We can dishonor other people by how we use our God-given bodies. And we say, how? By sexual immorality. Years ago, as a new Christian, I'm learning God's view on the idea of sex. I remember reading about one person who talked about how we should not misuse this gift of sex that God has given to us. And he gave this great illustration. I haven't forgotten in all these years. It'd be like this. If somebody were to give you a, a valuable watch, maybe in our days we'd say like an, uh, an Apple watch or a Rolex, a very expensive watch. If they were to give you this watch, and if you were to promptly put it on the bottom of your foot, you were going to wear it on your foot, and you walked around on it, you would do damage to this precious gift that was given to you. Damage to the gift, but also you dishonor the one who gave it to you. This is not what you do with a watch. You're using it all wrong. And, and we can do this with our bodies. God's designed us, and he's given us this gift of sex. We can misuse the gift of that. And by the way, you do know this is a gift that God has given you, right? We read about this in the book of Genesis where God created Adam and Eve. He presented them to each other unwrapped. So in Genesis 2, we read this, that they were naked and were not ashamed. You do understand this was all God's idea, that God's the one who created two genders, a male and a female. And God created marriage for them to express their love for each other in every dimension. We see this in places like Song of Solomon. We see this in places like the Proverbs. But right at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, we read this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Understand, sex is a gift from God. But understand this, God put limits on how we're to use that gift. God has put boundaries in place, what one person called logical, loving limits on this. Also, years ago, New Christian, reading on God's perspective on this important area of life. I read an article by Dean Sherman. It was in Keith and Melody Green's Last Days newsletter. Some of you who've been Christians a while might remember that, that ministry and that newsletter. And in that, he used a great illustration of talking about this gift of sex is like a powerful, beautiful river. And you know how rivers work. When you see a river, it is a beautiful, powerful thing. But it's no longer beautiful when it transgresses its banks. When it, when it comes out of its boundaries, we no longer call it a beautiful river. Now we call it a flood. And we know the great damage that happens when something leaves its boundaries. And so likewise, God, because he loves us, has told us what the banks of the river are for this gift that he's given to us. And you say, well, what are the limits? What limits has God put down? The limit is this, marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. And you do spiritual damage to your own soul and to the soul of another when you take this gift and you take it outside of its boundaries. Now, understandably, all of us have been powerfully tempted in this area of life, maybe like in no other area of life. It is a powerful temptation. When we direct these desires to somebody other than our spouse, we are doing damage, whether it's with our body, or with our mind, with our eyes. When we misaim this at someone, we're sinning. We're creating a separation between us and God, and when we sin, it leads to devastation. And listen, you and I need to hear this word because we don't hear this at all in our culture. We live in an especially bold generation here, casting off all restraints of gender and sexuality in direct opposition to what God has repeatedly and clearly told us 
we say this, that we can be whatever gender we want, and we can be in a sexual relationship with whoever we want. And our logic is essentially this in our generation. I am my appetites, that I am what my desires tell me rather than what God tells me, rather than what my creator and savior tells me. I am what my desires tell me. I know better than God what's good for me. No one, not even God, can tell me how to use my body. But there's the first problem. Your body does not belong to you. This isn't your body, especially if you call yourself a believer. You're not your own. All of us created by God. But if you are a believer, you've been purchased by God as well, doubly his. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. This is what Paul told the Corinthians in his first letter. He says this, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But we say, no, I'm going to make my appetites and desires, Lord. They will dictate me, but not God. And we rationalize our sexual sin with statements like this. If God didn't want me to act out on these feelings, he wouldn't have allowed me to have these feelings. Listen, that's not true. And that's not even logical. Now, let me just play with this a second. Uh, That type of logic would never hold up in court. What if you were to say to a judge, listen, I, I took the bracelet from the jewelry store because I really desired it. I really, really wanted it, and because I had that desire, I had to act on it, and therefore I should not be held accountable because I really, really wanted it. Or how about trying that with our parents as children? Like I really didn't want to unload the dishwasher, and I didn't want to load it because I'm kind of a lazy person, and I was born this way. I don't really like to work, and therefore I shouldn't be held accountable because I had a desire not to do what you were telling me to do. Or what if we tried this with our doctor? What if we try this logic? If God intended me to eat healthy, he would have not allowed me to have a desire for junk food. And therefore, really, it's God's fault that I have a desire for junk food. So doctor, stop judging me and pass the Doritos because I, I desire junk food. Listen, sex is God's creation and you and I are his creation and therefore we must honor God with our bodies. There's no other version of Christianity than that. If, if we've come to Christ, then these areas of life have to come under his leadership as well. By the way, here we are, many of us have more time at home, more time for entertainment. Let's also guard our eyes and our minds as well. Remember, Jesus warned us that that if you lust after somebody else, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Let's not give our eyes a pass. I love this Job. Job in Job 31.1 said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. All we've seen in the Bible Men like David who lusted after Bathsheba and all the destruction that came after that. Let's not excuse that. Let's not weaken ourselves by remaining in sin. So Paul brings us up not to condemn the Corinthians. He loves them. Notice he uses the word here. I'm mourning that this might be what happens when I get there. I find that you have not repented of your sin. Notice again verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So Paul is calling for repentance. And some people look at that word, and that's a negative word to repent. That is a beautiful word, repentance. Repentance is a reminder that sin doesn't have to have the last word in your life, that you can turn away from it. 
The call to repentance is a reminder that forgiveness is available to you. Cleansing is available. Restoration is available to you. So forgiveness and new life are for those who stop rationalizing their sin, but instead they confess it. Now, you and I know this, that God knows everything we've ever done or ever thought. And so when we confess, it's not informing God of something he doesn't know. He already knows. Biblically, when we confess, it means that we agree with God. We're finally willing to say, God, I agree with you about what I've been doing, what I've been thinking, what I've been seeing. I agree with you. I'm going to confess that I've been wrong. And what a promise comes when you confess. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so our move is to own it. Our move is to admit it. God, I've sinned in this way. Listen, don't believe for a minute that there's no forgiveness available to you if you've sinned sexually. Don't don't believe your life is over, your usefulness to God's over. Don't believe that. God says you can repent. In his grace, in his power, you can turn from that sin and come to him humbly for forgiveness. Don't believe the lie that you have to continue in this sin. This is just who you are. Don't believe that's not true. There's forgiveness available to you. There's restoration available. In fact, Paul told this to the Corinthians already in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's quite a statement. Do not be deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Did you hear that? No matter what your sinful background is, has been, you can be washed by Jesus. You can be sanctified, made holy. You can be justified, made righteous in the sight of God if you turn from sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's any sin, any sin that's holding you back, any sin that you've been clinging to, that's the one that you want to say, God, I no longer want to do that. I don't want to dishonor you further by rejecting you and what you revealed. I, Lord, admit, I, Lord, come to you for cleansing. Don't dishonor God. Don't dishonor each other. Don't excuse anger. Don't excuse gossip or greed or apathy or lust or immorality. Any of this, isn't it good news? We can repent and come to Jesus humbly and let him wash us. That's my appeal to you today. Would you do that? Would you take to heart what we've seen here from our text in 2 Corinthians 12 and say, Jesus, I want you to save me. I know that I need you to forgive me. You died on the cross to make this possible. You were raised from the dead to validate that it's true. And so, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I'm coming to you in my sin to be made holy, made clean. He's the one who can do it. Let me pray for you. God, we want to thank you for the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. All of us as human beings, Lord, we've sinned against you in a myriad of ways including in this way of sexual sin we've spent so much time talking about, but, but also in the way we've dishonored others and not given appropriate respect. And Lord, in the way we've fought with others, Lord, we need your forgiveness for all of this. And we are so thankful that what you accomplished for us on the cross covers all of our sin. And so our move, Lord, we understand, is to come to you confessing, come to you trusting in what you did for us. Not trusting ourselves, totally trusting in you, God, And I pray for friends who are watching this, that they would make that major shift in life from running in sin, rationalizing sin, no longer 
Lord, to run to you for the forgiveness that you're offering through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.